I think particularly when it comes to parenting, but in any, any position where we have some of this baggage about having to earn good enough and being perfect, there is the illusion that somehow if we do it right, that will be better. And yet what we see in the attachment literature about forming secure bonds is that doing it perfectly, one, doesn't exist, and two, creates a wound of its own because then you never teach whoever you're with how to make a repair. So if you do the very best that you can do to be perfect, but your kids aren't perfect, they will never have had someone model for them how to clean up their own mess. Good day, dear friends and damn givers. I'm Nick LaPara, founder of Let's Give a Damn and host of the Let's Give a Damn podcast. This is the show you come to when you want to hear from people who are giving a damn in so many unique and meaningful ways. Thank you for hitting play. Thank you for showing up this week. And thank you for joining us on this journey toward leaving the planet much better than we found it. Friends, my guest this week is an absolute gem of a human. Her name is Hillary McBride, excuse me, Dr. Hillary McBride, and you're about to learn so much from this empathetic, wise, and full of healing human. Hillary is a therapist, researcher, speaker, and writer, and most recently, a mother. Some of what I'm about to say, I stole, admittedly, from the bio on her website, but only because I couldn't say it better myself. So why say a bunch of stuff about Hillary off the top of my head when her website has already captured so much of what makes Hillary who she is? Anyway, she loves to help people grow, heal, change, and come into more fullness in themselves and their relationships. She is passionate about the well-being of all people and wants to make psychology and academic research accessible to a wide variety of people. Dr. McBride uses various therapeutic approaches, including AEDP, attachment work and depth-oriented psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, emotion-focused therapy, various trauma and body-based therapies, feminist approaches to mental health and therapy, EMDR, lifespan integration, OEI, mindfulness, inner child and parts work, and meaning and insight-based therapies. (sighs) Please don't ask me what half of that means, but I wanted to give you an example of all of the incredible ways that Hillary is helping so many people. Hillary got her PhD in counseling psychology from the University of British Columbia, as well as a Master of Arts in counseling psychology. And she is the author of a fantastic book called Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image, Learning to Love Ourselves as We Are, as well as a book we spend most of our time discussing today called The Wisdom of Your Body, Finding Healing, Wholeness, and Connection Through Embodied Living. Listen, I could spend another five to 10 minutes reading off her bio and telling you all the amazing things she has done and is doing, or I could shut up and we can jump right into today's conversation. I'll assume you want me to choose the latter option. Before we begin, as always, a quick reminder that you can email me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. Ask questions, recommend future guests, tell me how much you love or hate the show, anything really, 
I just love hearing from you. And now, without further ado, let's get right into my conversation with the absolutely stunning Hillary McBride. Let's go. We're just going to start for those that are, are listening. This is yeah. a this is a uh, months long conversation. Seven, seven. Yeah, probably. It's been a while. It's been a while. <laughs> I have had to postpone multiple times. I think oh you had gosh. to postpone once. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and it's just it's they were all legitimate things, of like course. health and just all sorts yes. of things that are happening, and it it honestly is. Uh, very appropriate that so many things got in the way of this because so many of them were just the busyness of life. Uh, and this is what you deal with. Like you are helping people, true. right? So I, I just shared on Instagram. I was like, I made this like really mm. silly face. And I was like, this is how I feel as I prepare for this conversation, because uh, I feel like I'm going to get like an hour of free therapy. <laughs> um, and so I'm scared, but also like really happy. Um, <laughs> We all need so much what you bring to the table. So I'm so, so thrilled to be doing this. I'm so touched to hear you say that. That feels so, um, like, I don't know, wait, but what's gratitude might be the feeling. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for the affirmation of me and my work right off the bat. That feels so good. Yeah. You, you, you you deserve all of it. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it it appears from social media that you just got back from a... (laughs) A little bit of rest, hopefully. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I saw um, the an adventure. I, yeah. It was an there adventure you go. more than it was Let, rest. Let's, yeah. let's, let's talk about that because things, okay. things change when you start having kids, yeah. right? Like vacation yeah. is no longer just like truly vacation. Hopefully someday it becomes yeah. truly vacation again. But That's how was right. your first vacation as, you know, a, as a mother, you know, uh, taking, taking this infant oh. to this place that is so magnificent and beaches and sand and sun Mm, and all of that. mm -hmm. And then you have this little, this little, uh, amazing creature Mm. that, uh, is now taking up so much of your time and attention. You're trying to make sure they're fed and safe and all of that. How was the first vacation? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you that, um, one, like I, we got home yesterday, landed and today I texted my husband he was, you know, he was at work and I'm in the middle of my work day. And I said, I just feel so lucky that I get to see her grow up in the world. There's something about knowing that you get a front row seat to see someone unfolding in their story. I mean, maybe it's my disposition, maybe it's my training, maybe it's, I don't know what it is, but I feel like the luckiest person in the world that I get to see her become who she is. And I feel that about everyone that I work with too. There's like, it's so commonplace to be human. It's all we know. And yet it feels like when I'm paying attention, it is also the most magical, extraordinary thing to see a person become themselves and heal and grow and change. So the fact that I get to do that from beginning to end with this person is like mind blowing to me. The second reflection is I am very clearly still learning that there's no territory in my life that is untouched by this massive reorganization and how I knew life to be. It's like, even vacation is not the same. Even like everything has been touched and shifted by the ripple effects of my daughter coming to my life and, and nothing will ever be the same. And yet it is also exactly as it was before in some way, like the beaches look the same as they did before flying is, I mean, 
the technology is still the same to some degree. And yet I, my entire world and identity is being reorganized. And so of course, even vacation feels different. Like nothing is untouched <laughs> in a way. Well, that will, yeah. that will never, as a father of three kids now mm-hmm. well past the, the stage that you're in with your yeah. daughter, um, that never changes. Yeah. It, it, it is still, uh, I'm a, I'm a, terrible parent that is learning every day how to be a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Um, These bags under my eyes that you can see and no one else can see, those are permanent now. It just, Mm -hmm. you know, three kids, like three kids that are seven, nine, and 10 now, years of, you know, not sleeping and stomach bugs and, you know, all all the stuff, all the tantrums and the hugging and the holding and the, they felt that like Mm. all of that, it, it really is just this tremendously great adventure that mm-hmm. sometimes fucking sucks and it's yeah. hard, but most yeah. of the time I have that feeling that you just had where it's just like, oh my God, like, I can't believe that I get to do this. Yeah. Like yeah. I truly, and, and, and there's just a lot of like, not walking around eggshells, but just very humbly, a lot of trepidation about like, right. I can now people are resilient in these, in a lot of kids have gone through a lot of horrible things and grown up to be amazing. And they've overcome so many things. But having said that I can make or break Mm -hmm. this child's future, Mm -hmm. right? Like the way that I treat them, the way that I talk to them, the way that I hurt them or not hurt them, the way that Mm -hmm. I deal with all the stuff that comes up in their lives can make them an amazing human, or I can hurt them. Mm -hmm. Like I can hurt them, maybe not beyond repair, but really close. And that's really humbling, you know? It is. Yeah, I hear the reverence and the awe for the power that you have. And I think that's healthy, like to have a sense of that without it being impairing or disabling or inhibiting in some way to walk into this role with humility about the impact that you have. Like, you know, you're just having a bad day and you say something off the cuff and it could it could be the thing that, that, you know, your child goes and sees a therapist about 20 years later, like that's, that's heavy to hold. And so to be able to walk into the space with attention and consciousness is, uh, it's demanding. And I, I think about it regularly, like how, how hard it is to be a parent who's trying to be conscious. Like there is something about living out the programming that we've been handed by our parents. The automaticity of it isn't, it doesn't take as much from us. It's really easy to just kind of play the script that we were given, but to do things different and to be conscious and to show up and go, okay, how do I be in this moment in a way that doesn't hurt you and shows you that you are good and nurtures you and my stuff gets to be on the shelf so that I'm not tangling it up in what's happening for you. Like that, that's hard. It's really, really hard. And I don't think we're meant to do that kind of work alone. No. No, definitely not. I, I was actually listening to this um, this podcast yesterday with it was the 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 um, oh what po- the the Smartless podcast. It's a comedy podcast with uh, Will Arnett and Jason Bateman and Sean uh, Hayes, and they interview all these people. Well, they had uh, it, it is it is belly laughs. It's just such a fun, <laughs> I do it when I need like not the heavy podcast yeah, or not yeah. like, you know, and, and, and Bill Maher was on the podcast and Bill Maher is, you know, very widely known as this guy who's never married, very, I, I mean, like 
he doesn't understand marriage and kids and that whole, those relationships. Like he has never done it. will never do it. And, and, and not just like, Hey, it wasn't for me. Like he doesn't understand the the point of getting married. And, and I was listening to him and I, and I, I, I think he's great. He, he's super smart and also really annoying and, you know, goes too far and you know, whatever. But I've, Yesterday, I felt myself, I was walking back from Costco all the way across Harlem, pulling my groceries in my cart. And I was sitting there thinking, the only thing I kept thinking over and over again when he was talking about relationships was, man, I really feel bad. No, it's fine. It's fine that he doesn't want to get married or have kids or any of that stuff. But it wasn't like you should do this. Fine. Don't do it. But I really felt bad that he would never experience and that he couldn't even begin to comprehend why do people, you know, get married and, and, you know, and mm. want to stay with their partners for a life and then have kids like do that whole thing. And I was like, mm. man, I really think you're missing out on a lot because I am a, yes, some days I dream of, you know, what would it be like if I never got married and, you know, I could do whatever I want. And before I got married, I was traveling the world, just literally living out of two suitcases. It was, it was the dream. It was amazing, but I wouldn't trade this for anything. Like this is just, it's a, it's such a wonderful life to, again, to trip and fall through, you know, mm. making it work with my partner 14 years now, and then throw three kids into the mix that I really want to, mm. you know, raise them to, you know, leave a meaningful, you know, impact, uh, you know, in the world. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's really, it's really amazing. And I'm, I'm mm. so glad that you are now part of us. <laughs> um, and you get to be experiencing it now with your daughter. Mm, thank you for saying that. That felt like such a, a benediction. Um, what so. a gift to me to hear you say that. You know, it, you know, it reminds me a little bit of the Alexander McCandless. No, no, no. Christopher McCandless story. Did you ever read or hear the Into the Wild book, movie? Yes. I don't remember yeah. it really well, but yes, yes, totally. Well, this, this young man leaves and tries to escape the trauma of his family and his upbringing and goes out onto this solo expedition across America and then up into Alaska. And right before he dies, realizes happiness is meant to be shared. And there's something about, um, I think, the myth of individualism and the idealism of the lone wolf that is a defense against the pain of relationship. That relationship mm. is painful. Relationship is costly, that it can wound us greatly. And so in a way, I actually really deeply understand his position, not Alexander or uh, Christopher, although I guess, yeah, Christopher and Bill Maher and kind of anyone who has that idea. And in some way, it's kind of a logical defense against the pain of connection that, that can at times be so overwhelming and unfathomable that we would do anything we could to stay away from it. Like there is some sort of sensibility in that. And yet the cost of staying away from it and the cost of the defense is the loss of this mutuality and the shared experience that um, thickens all that is good in life to have it reflected back to us and mirrored back to us, a moment of joy and a spark between people, the recognition of life's goodness itself and the unaloneness that we can feel when we are in connection is it feels like such a, a rightness and yet it's carries so much pain for so many of us. I can, I can see why at times it would feel easier to do it alone. Yeah. Well said, beautifully said. Mm -hmm. Um, 
can we go back in your story for a bit before mm-hmm. we get into your book? I want to spend most of our time together, our limited time on the, your latest book, The Wisdom of mm-hmm. Your Body. Um, you. But as we lead up to that, I always, even if we don't have like a ton of time, I want to get a sense for like where I'm always interested in like, okay, you're doing this incredible work, you know, and you've helped so many people, the endorse, like so many of my friends endorsed your book and, mm-hmm. and everybody I know that, you know, kind of runs in, in our mutual circles loves you and, mm. you know, can't get enough of you and is super, oh. <laughs> super helped by your work. And so that intrigues me, right? Like, that's like, okay, how did Hillary become the person that Hillary is today, right? Like that's so, that's so intriguing. So in a few minutes, could you go back and yeah. just share the, the who, what, when, where, and why of, of your life? You know, the people that shaped you, the people that made you, sure. the, the circumstances that made you and kind of lead us into a little bit of your story so that we can understand, you know, you in uh-huh. present day writing a book, like the wisdom of your body that uh-huh. has helped so many people that I know and love. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I'll try to tell the story a little differently than I have before, just to, maybe to keep myself interested too. There you go. (laughs) Um, Who, what, where, when, why? Uh, If I'm thinking about the people, I think about my mom and my dad um, who are very loving, very smart, uh, both therapists, um, hardworking people who love, who love God and love community and See loving God as a thing you do by how you love your neighbor. Mm. It's kind of like, um, and not in this necessarily like I'm beholden to a series of good works to kind of earn my, you know, fire insurance and heaven sort of thing, but more like this, this is kind of what we do as, as people who love God is we show up for each other. So that was really embedded in the story of how to be a person of faith growing up for me. Um, and also people who, yeah, love to listen and slow down into places of pain and tenderness. And I think probably because that hadn't happened for them in their life growing up, that they had lots of unresolved trauma and did their very best to, to tend to it, um, given that that would have been very novel from their families of origin. So that's kind of a, a picture of my parents. Um, I'm trying to think of what else. So well, the, let, me, the, let me let me yeah, let, yeah. let me stop you there because this is uh, this is uh-huh. really I've, I've already picked up on something that I really really like, mm. and that is, so your parents, in their younger years, had this. Yeah. You, you you alluded to kind of trauma and unresolved trauma that they had to eventually work through and yeah. and figure out right, and they became healthy. So much so that they became therapists as their as their career. And and obviously, just the few words you shared about them, they were able to pass that love and that like sort of mm. and that therapy along to you. They were able to, to work with you and love you. And so they broke a cycle there, right? You know, we we talk about hurt people, hurt people, and but it seems like they might have been hurt people, but then they became they didn't they didn't keep that cycle going. Right. Well, let's split hairs and okay. maybe add some click complexity. I think that, and, and I'm learning this right now. You think you've healed it. You think you've broken the cycle and then you have kids and you see the parts that left, uh, were left unresolved For and sure. your children somehow invite you into a new level of healing, but you learn that because you hurt them. 
So I think about my parents doing the very best that they could up until that yes. point. And then having, you know, becoming therapists and having us as kids. And there's something about the developmental stages of your kids and where they're at that reactivates the places of your own unprocessed pain because the ego structure that as much as we think it kind of is fragmented and we are individuals and we buy into this colonial myth that like we are separate from each other, our bodies and indigenous wisdom and things we know on some sort of spiritual level are capital T true in a sense that when our kid, we see this and how we parent that when our kids are the age that we were at, when our traumas happened, we feel that in our own body, the reverberations of like how you and I are woven together in that sense, you know, really starts to get activated. So there's a new level of healing that the potential for healing that presents itself as your kids, as you see your kids grow up in front of you and you feel your own reactions go, Ooh, I didn't know I was going to do that or, Oh, right. So one of the things that I talk about a little bit in my first book is that my mom, my mom was really abused by her family growing up. And so she made a vow. She was never going to hit us, but she didn't know what else to do. So these moments happen. She gets dysregulated. I'm speaking up. I'm using my voice in a way that she would have never been able to. Something gets happened. Something gets activated in her where she wants to have a reaction to me like her mom would have had to her. But she, in her very best effort to break a cycle, walks out of the room so that she doesn't hit me. But my experience of growing up, and not all the time, but in some very key moments, is I'm completely abandoned with mm. whatever's going on for me. The complexity of it is what a beautiful gift that my mom never hit me. I would never change that for the world. She gave me an incredible gift and she righted, she righted something in her own story by breaking that cycle. But the only tool that she knew how to grab for was to go away, to oh. protect me by going away. So I have experiences of feeling like, okay, to keep my person close to me, shut it all down. Right. And that's how the trauma gets, it morphs, the trauma morphs and it gets a little more insidious and it also heals a little bit from generation to generation, but I'm left feeling like, okay, me using my voice and me speaking up and taking up space is going to threaten our connection. So shove it all down to stay close. Cause then she doesn't have to leave the room because then I have my person there with me. Right. So you're right in the sense that my parents did so much work. And I want to demystify the, or kind of um, shatter the illusion that we're supposed to have it figured out or that we're supposed to have it figured out with, you know, before we have kids. And I'm now at the place in my story where I can see what a gift that my mom gave me. And I can hold like that really hurt me. And somehow both of those have made me who I am. And I'm at a place in my life now where I can look at myself and go, oh, look look at who I am. My heart is so good. Look at the places of pain. Oh, those are still there. Oh, like I can hold it all. And so I don't need it to be any different. And, and I don't think that my mom, I say that because I don't think that my mom doing her very best and the hurt that it caused me impaired me to the point that I can't function now. Somehow there was still something in me or something she gave me, maybe the spirit of of healing that she passed on as she left the room is like, this is my gift to you. I, I can see how it all belongs now. Uh, I'm holding back tears right now. Mm. Uh, 
So wow. my, my version of that, here's my version yeah, of that. My, me, my dad um, is now wonderful. Like just mm. the, the cuddliest teddy bear ever. Mm. Growing up, he beat the shit out of us yeah. on an almost daily basis. And I got mm. it the worst out of, I'm one of 12 kids. Um, lots of kids, a lot of different mm. personalities. Mm a lot of different needs and wants. And I was the most like, I'm an Enneagram eight. I'm a very extreme Enneagram eight. I am very passionate. I don't take no for an answer. Anything you tell me to do, I'm just going to ask why, because I want to make sure we're on the same page. And, you know, with a, with a dad who, you know, came out of abuse mm -hmm. when he was younger and did, didn't do anything in those early years to control it. He was just un just uncontrolled, you know, anger, verbal abuse, physical abuse, spiritual abuse, um, so that was my experience growing up and, and, and I love that you pointed out that we can hold all of these things, right. At the they, they can all be true, right. Mm -hmm. That your mother, you know, somehow gave you this gift of walking out of the room and that still sucked that you were abandoned. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. I, when I look back at my growing up years, my younger siblings don't even know how great they had it because he started yeah. to change in the later years. And now again, like in his sixties, now he's amazing and he's totally changed. And I really uh, thank God in the universe that something happened 10, 12 years ago in his life. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not even sure what it was, but it was just this radical change in his life. But in those earlier years, anyway, like I, as I look back at those younger years, even though they were full of abuse, I don't want to change any of that. Like I mm. wouldn't change one bit of it because it was a really bad thing. Those are really bad things that really shaped me. They made me the person I am today. They made me the very passionate, but I don't hit my kids. We, mm -hmm. we, we have chosen not hit our kids either. And my version of your mom walking out of the room is one thing that I don't have under control is my fucking tongue. And mm. I am learning slowly, but surely in my late thirties, but it has taken me a long time to, so because I know I'm not going to hit my kids because that's just wrong and it doesn't work mm -hmm. and it's not helpful. Right. Well, then my mouth says, well, then raise your voice. Like, let them mm -hmm. know that what they did was not okay. They know they're not going to get hurt. They know they're mm -hmm. not going to get physically hurt, mm -hmm. but like, you got to let them, you got to remind them my, mm -hmm. my, my flesh, Take right? Control. Yeah. Like you gotta, you gotta remind them who's in control here. And That's what they right. did was really bad. You shouldn't do that. That's not right. What you did. Mm. And I am constantly like, you know, my, my wife is amazing. And she just, just patiently, you know, just reminding me like, okay, the hitting, you know, we've never hit our kid. We don't do that. But like the yelling thing, not much better. Like mm -hmm. you, your kids need to know that you are going to, you know, be, be tender with them and that whatever they do, the yeah. bad, they're, they're kids, right. they do stupid shit. Like right. the, bad, <laughs> the bad stuff they do, it's going to be met with not leaving the room, not exiting the room, but also not yelling. It's going to be met mm -hmm. with, you know, just, in a, I mean, we're adult, like, come on, like self-restraint and meekness and like, Hey, uh -huh. you know, just calmly talking it through. Yeah. Yeah. You're so right. I mean, it's, it's incredible to think about how many ways, how many ways we can, we can get away from doing the thing that's actually needed, which is right. show up, be attuned. Like, and, and I'm imagining that we're 
passing down through generations, this parcel of pain. And as we pass it, okay, this is the image that's coming to mind. You know, those games at Christmas where it's like, um, unwrapping the gift and there's like 20 layers of wrapping paper and you're passing it around and you somehow get closer to the thing underneath. It's like, we're passing this intergenerational pain down and every generation takes a layer off or sometimes two or three, if you're lucky and your kids are going to probably be able to do so much better in terms of being attuned and present and regulated because of what you've given them. And they're also going to have their own version of working through like, oh, there were times when my dad said such and such to me and it hurt me and it left me. Right. And it's like, it's an amazing, beautiful thing to see Eve healing and hurt go side by side. Yeah. And I almost wouldn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Totally. The healing and the hurt side by side. That's a beautiful picture. And I I don't want my kids to like, I want my kids to know that they're growing up in a both and world, right? Not an either or you're like, you're you're either, you're either, you're either all bad or all good, right? Right. That's just not how life is. When I look at myself, when I look at people out there on the left and on the right, people trying to, you know, do the right thing, trying people trying to impact the world well, Mm. and people, and then people that seemingly aren't living that way. Like I'm constantly having to remind myself, Nick, take a, and I'm so bad at it, but like take a step back and realize Mm -hmm. that person is not just what you're seeing right now. Mm -hmm. So stop with these blanket uh, (laughs) uh, judgments over Mm -hmm. who this person is entirely. That's not who they are. There are a whole bunch of things, not just, not just that one thing. Right. And that's, I want my kids to know that. And so I almost am glad, right. That I'm not Uh right. Maybe. Should I be glad that I'm not doing it perfectly? Because I wouldn't Mm. want them. I wouldn't want them to get this. Like humans aren't perfect, right? Well, can I talk about theory for a second here? Would it be okay to jump into kind of the the academic? Yes. It is so tempting. I think, particularly when it comes to parenting, but in any any position where we have some of this baggage about having to earn good enough and being perfect. There is the illusion that somehow if we do it right, that will be better. And yet what we see in the attachment literature about forming secure bonds is that doing it perfectly, one, doesn't exist, and two, creates a wound of its own because then you never teach whoever you're with how to make a repair. So if you do the very best that you can do to be perfect, but your kids aren't perfect, they will never have had someone model for them how to clean up their own mess. We actually need, because we're all in process and we all come with wounds and we hurt each other, all of the things that are inherent and part of connection relationship, we need to teach our children and those around us and those we are stewarding and, and pastoring and you know, working with in therapy, to include myself in there, we need to teach them that we make mistakes too and here's what we do when we make that mistake. So actually what the attachment literature says is, is it better that you don't yell at your kids? Yeah. Because there's some other strategies or like, is it better that you don't walk out of the room? Yeah. Because there's some other strategies we can use, but what's most important is actually, if you do that, that you come back to them and go, that was yes. so not okay that I did that Yes, because you're giving them the model of one, their experience is worth is kind of worth honoring and their hurt is valid and real and that they are in the presence of an adult who's taking responsibility. And you're essentially downloading into their nervous system, the map for how they will repair when they hurt somebody else. And so we actually know that you need repair to create secure attachment. It's, this is again, the hurt and the healing going side by side. If in relationships, 
you ignore the hurt and you don't repair or you try to be perfect all the time, which is its own, its own kind of dysfunction in a way, that you actually miss creating the thickening that creates actual safety. It's somehow in the hurt and then the repair of the hurt that the true, true safety starts to exist. True conditions of health start to exist. That's really sigh. beautiful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was, yeah. I, I, I needed to like audibly sigh there because right. God, we need like 30 hours mm-hmm. to get through all of this. Um, one, one last thing I'll say on this whole kid okay. thing, this whole parenting thing before yeah. we move on to the book. Um, I'm really glad to hear you say all of that. Um, because one of the only, or one of the saving graces of my life, which is in, in constant flux and I'm constantly growing and even more constantly failing is that somehow in all the hurt that my dad and my parents gave me growing up and me sort of fumbling through processing and healing and growing over the last 20 years, uh, you know, since I've been a teenager is that I've never, again, this, I, 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 this is a, a grace from the universe that I've never I've always, I've never had a problem asking for forgiveness and admitting mm. when I'm wrong. Wow. So thankfully with all the fucking up I've done in my marriage yeah. and with my kids, I have mm. always, you know, it is wow. as immediately as I can, I've tried to get back down there, you know, with the kids, I down on my knees mm. and just be like, Oh, I'm so sorry. I did oh, that. That is yeah. not right. Oh, what and a so gift to them. You're, mm. you're, you're, you're affirming for me right now from an academic and a very empathetic standpoint from your, you know, from your end that that's helpful. And that, mm-hmm. that, that is, that might help that might, that it's, it's reassuring me that my kids are probably going to be okay because mm-hmm. they're seeing a whole bunch of stuff in our home. But at the end of the day, they have two parents that have at this point, thousands of times in their life mm-hmm. in their right. short lives so far have yeah. said, I'm sorry, That's that was right. wrong. Oof. That was wrong. There's no excuse yeah. for that. That means that, that they have the map of how good it feels to have that happen. And they actually have the language and the behavioral programming to do it themselves, which is like, I don't, I don't know if you can give them a better gift. And I, I'll say like, this reminds me because I'm hearing so many parallels in our stories in this way of, of how good my mom is at that. Like my mom, I, I don't know anyone better. Maybe you are actually, you sound really skilled at it, but in my life, I don't know anyone better at saying, I'm, I'm sorry, at saying, let's make this better. And so she, a really interesting experience. This was probably two years ago on mother's day we were talking about some stuff and it kind of like, I started to feel a little bit tearful and, and I I felt myself at odds with like, should I talk about what's going on for me? She was kind of asking some questions about a certain period of my life. And I noticed feeling like, Oh, it's mother's day. Like, do I tell you the truth about this or not? Like this would just be a right, the right day to be like, it's fine, mom. Don't worry about it. Like of all days on mother's day, I'm going to give you this one. And yet, and yet she was, she kind of cleared away what she was doing. We were, we were unpacking some boxes and she put it aside and she said, no, 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 I can see what's happening. I really want to know. 
like, tell me what's happening right now. Tell me the truth. So she invited me to go there. And I said, I felt, I felt like you hurt me in this way. And I, I kind of went into the thing that felt painful. And I said to her, like, this wounded me, the way that you treated me around this particular thing, whatever the thing was that we were working on, it, it hurt me. Mm. And it still hurts when I think about it. And I said, oh, no, 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 mom. I, I'm, you know, it, that thing came up again. I, I'm sorry, it's Mother's Day. I shouldn't be going to this. And she, she grabbed my wrist and she stopped me. And she said, you don't ever have to protect me from the discomfort that I feel about how I hurt you. Mm. That is mine to bear. If I feel guilt, if I feel sadness about how I hurt you, how good and right, you never deserve to be hurt. And so tell me where it hurts. Tell me where it hurts and don't protect me because I can hold it and I can take it and I want to know. And then she proceeded to say, and where else does it hurt? What else is unfinished between us? What else do I need to know about how I've hurt you? And to not just be able to tolerate my sadness and my anger, but to ask for more, like that, that makes me feel safe. And I think that when I look back and do the analysis on it, it's the opposite of walking out of the room. It's like, I'll go there with you. And not only will I go there with you, I am rock fucking solid. And whatever is happening for you is not going to shake me, which is exactly what a child or anyone in an attachment relationship deserves to hear. And we get there through the repair. So good. So good. So good. So good. Okay. Okay. Um, no, gear. this is this is really, this is really <laughs> good. My gosh, um, I'm I'm gonna charge people to listen to this. I've never done this before in any podcast. I'm gonna be like, you have to pay me to listen to this because you don't get this for free. Come on. Um, the wisdom of your body, finding mm. healing, wholeness, and connection through embodied living. I want to. I'm gonna pick a few chapter titles. And just ask you to sort of, I don't want to give people too much. Everyone needs to buy this book and keep it on their nightstand and read and reread. Um, It it will, it will help everybody I know needs this book and it will help them. Wow. But we don't have time to go through the whole thing, but before, before I pick and choose a few chapters and say, Hey, Hillary, can you just like tell us a little bit about this chapter? Because we don't have a ton of time. Why, why'd you, it probably makes sense when people know who you are and the kinds of work mm. that you do. I mean, in, in your bio uh, that, that I saw online, it says, I love to help. I love to see people grow, heal, change, and come into more fullness in themselves and their relationships. And also in your bio, this I thought was interesting because this tells me a little bit about who you are, not just as a, not just as a professional, you know, PhD masters, masters and PhD level therapist, but also just as a person in your, it says, I enjoy working with adults with various issues, including anxiety, depression, self-esteem, body image, life transition, mother, daughter relationships. And you keep going on and on, but you specialize in areas of trauma, eating disorders, body image, marriage, and like you, your whole, like every single day, right before we got on this podcast, you finished up a few minutes late with a client, right? So you're talking about these things. Why'd you write this book and why are you, give mm. us a kind of a high level, uh, a, a synopsis of what makes you want to work with all of people's shit. Like this is yeah. hard stuff <laughs> and every day, the things uh, I just mentioned, like uh-huh. they're, they're, they're on you and then you're helping them. Mm. But wh- why, okay. why write this book? Why write the book? Why do the work? Um, one, I think it's important to say that I 
I think there's like, re- we say this in the academic community, research is me search. There's like so much of my own stuff that's wrapped up in why I want to help other people. Like I've had some really shitty therapists who I felt like they did more damage. And there's probably some like ego thing in me that's like, I can do it better. I'm going to do it better. I'm not going to hurt people the way I was hurt. But I think that there's something about like all of this being like confounding to me too. Like, what does it mean to be human? What do we do with the fact that we're in bodies and the bodies that we're in are the places where we hurt each other and where we feel our pain and where we carry our trauma and where we, you know, experience hierarchy and oppression. What do we do with the fact that we're in bodies and our bodies die? Like, how do we wrap our mind around the complexity of this experience of being human when it also holds this other side? Like our bodies are where we experience pleasure and joy and vitality. And how are we, how are we grappling with all of this? It's like, I'm struggling with those questions too. And I hear people all the time dealing with the after effects of not knowing how to be with the complexity of being human and how all of the ways that we try to get away from it and the way we numb and avoid and somehow try to protect ourselves from the pain, mostly because we probably think the pain is too big and overwhelming and we're never going to get through it. And yet when we have someone who says me too, or I want to be in it with you, or I get it, all of a sudden it becomes a little less overwhelming and a little more manageable. And we find the capacity to, to stretch and hold it. And, and then it doesn't overwhelm us. And then we see that there's beauty in it too. And there's something about this, like, um, I'm just thinking about composting. My friend Robin, Robin used this language, composting our pain, that Mm. taking painful things and being together with them allows something beautiful to grow. And I've seen that in my own life. And when I zero in on the embodiment piece specifically, I think about how much I've hated my body, how the body was the place that held all of the pain and all of the trauma. And so it felt easier at some point to fragment off my existence and just be dissociative, just, just make, make my body disappear, make it go away, try everything I could to hurt it and suppress it and subdue it. And I think for a long time, I saw myself as different from other people in doing that. But the more I started researching just embodiment and this fragmentation, I saw that that's a, that that's a coping mechanism that our culture hands us to say, get away from your body, create a hierarchy, be in your mind, dissociate, and, and shame other people who, who aren't in their, or who can't do that and who are in their bodies and mm. feel like you're better than them and, and kind of get, climb into the mind palace to get away from the pain of existence. And I found comfort in realizing one, I'm not alone in struggling with being in the body. And I'm not alone in thinking that the body is the problem because one, that's where pain is, but two, our culture has told us that that's the best way to be. So I see myself as part of this cultural fabric of people who are suffering with the lived realities of what it means to be fragmented from ourselves and each other. And I've just seen time and again and again and again what happens when we do it a different way. Uh, yeah, you're the perfect person to write this book. I mean, it just, you know, you know, it just, it's, it's, I, 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 I usually have, you know, really good follow-up with, you know, questions that I'm asking. And with, with this conversation, I just feel like I'm drinking from a fire hose and every, every every monologue is like a, like a, like a sermon 
that I need to like, mm. you know, repent from afterward. Oh <laughs> so, I, so like, oh, no, I don't, no, I don't really, no. a, a lot of, after you finish, I'm like, okay, where do we go from here? Sorry. Cause there's like, no, 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 yeah, no. There's okay. nothing to be sorry for. It's just like, okay. it's so rich. It's so good. Mm. Um, okay. So with this book, there are three uh, chapter titles that I want to yeah. point out. All of them are good. The whole, listen to me, everybody, buy the book. The whole book is good. But there's three chapters that I'd love for you to give like a quick overview from just okay. to give us a taste of the book and what people are going to find when they go read this wonderful book. Uh, chapter two, how we become disembodied lies about our bodies and finding our way home. So mm-hmm. Hillary, Dr. Hillary, how do we become <laughs> disembodied? How does that happen? Yeah. So if you back up in time, because we we might find the temptation, we might find ourselves tempted to look at our individual reality and think, I'm in isolation from everybody else. I'm feeling disembodied and it's it's my life story and it's my lived experience and it's my individual reality that got me here. But when we start to pull back the lens and go all the way back to Greek philosophy, we see an idea that emerged at a certain time around Plato that says mind and body are separate. Mm. There's a distinction. So we see a parsing that happens and that there's a, there's a value. There's a, a valence to that hierarchy that tells us mind is somehow better than body. Not only are they separate, but mind is better. And there's a reason for that. Mind is better because then you don't have to deal with the perils of flesh, lust, death, pain, incarceration, suffering, separation, oppression. I mean, slavery, all of the things that go along with being a body. So move up into your mind and then closely sandwiched in there is, and your mind, if you think right, can keep you out of trouble, right? If you think right, can actually get you closer to God, can get you closer to what is good and what is pure. And in some ways you can reduce your suffering. So we see this fragmentation out and you can imagine the ripple effects of that moving all the way through history where people with power thought this. And so it shaped the way that they designed government and structures and systems and people who had the most power often were the people who benefited most from being disembodied and disconnected and being able to move up into the mind and were seen as being at the top of this hierarchy, you know, white bodies, male bodies, able bodies, cisgender bodies, like all all of the, all of the ways that we were like, oh yeah, that person somehow has the most social power and it has something to do with their body. And it ripples down into things like sexism and patriarchy and the objectification of women and diet culture and all of these stories that shape the complexity of our our interpersonal relationships where we start praising each other from a very early age you got a good body or you get access to this social space because your body looks like this or functions this way or oh no you your body did the wrong thing so you have to go over there you're bad you can't belong to this community mm-hmm. and all of those things like this is where we have to you know sidestep for a moment into interpersonal neurobiology Most of us never learned growing up that the stories that we hear actually shape the structure and function of our neural tissue to the point that the self that we believe that we are didn't just kind of emerge out of nowhere, but is the kind of end result of the things that have happened to us up until this point. So if we're swimming in a culture that has been informed by those historical beliefs and philosophies and values, we just wake up one day and think, I hate my body or Oof, 
why don't my joints work anymore? I hate getting older. It's so stupid. Or, you know, we go, Oh God, like it's, you know, this, this chronic illness that I have is really proof that my body is failing or, you know, oh, if only my body looked different or functioned this way, or if I didn't have my trauma, or if only my panic went away, look, oh, look, my panic or my night sweats or my whatever, my vaginal pain or my difficult, whatever it is, like if only those things went away, it would be proof that I could be here and I'd be okay and that my body yeah. was good without ever realizing that the reason we think all of those things had nothing to do with us doing anything wrong or our body ever being bad. So we, we just live in a, in a culture that hands us some very dysfunctional, distorted beliefs about bodies. And for anyone who's feeling shame or guilt about having identified with some of those things, I want to let you know, again, kind of like we talked about at the beginning of our conversation, it kind of also makes sense that we think those things because being in a body is hard. And when we haven't been taught how to handle the pain of it, of course, we're going to adapt some coping mechanism to try to get away from the pain and we're going to try to distance from it. So we don't have to feel more shame for having been disembodied or disconnected, but we have to realize that it's cutting us off from ourselves and from each other. That's beautiful. Beautiful summary. Um, in chapter eight, pleasure okay. and enjoyment. Yeah, the the yeah. sensual and sexual mm -hmm. body. I've seen you on social media and other on, on other mediums talk about uh, purity culture, mm -hmm. and I know that we both have a you know a a religious background. Uh, we don't have enough time to talk about where we are currently and presently uh, mm -hmm. in that, but talk about that chapter a little bit and kind of include for those listening because a lot of the people just because of where I've come in life. And a lot of the conversations we've had on this show, a lot of people listening right now have been deeply, deeply hurt and affected by uh, purity culture, specifically mm -hmm. in the evangelical church, specifically, right. you know, they, they, they spent their entire growing up years being told by white men uh, standing behind a pulpit that here are the 550 things you can't do. Only to find out that most of these guys were, you know, had, had, were, <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. doing all sorts of horrible things to their daughters mm -hmm. and to their secretaries and all these things that were happening behind the scenes. Meanwhile, mm -hmm. they told us, if you do this, if you do, if you fuck up once it's over, like you can't come back from mm -hmm. this, that, and the other. And it really deeply traumatized, you know, mm -hmm. me, you know, I didn't, uh, I've shared this in 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 uh, in a variety of conversations, but like real briefly, my like I didn't I didn't masturbate to the first for the first time until I was sixteen, which mm -hmm. is really late for a young man. Sure, um, yeah. And and why did that happen? Because I, no one ever. Uh, I started looking at I started looking at pornography well before that, but I didn't know what to do with mm, it. Right. Because right. no one talked to me about bodily uh -huh. functions and pleasure and what to do and whatnot. Like nobody even talked about it. It was yes. like, just don't, don't go there. Yeah. Don't open that door. That door is locked yeah. for a reason. And, and, and so, yeah, we're mm. all dealing, we're all dealing with this stuff and I'm still now decades removed from that mm -hmm. still unpacking the, the mm -hmm. trauma that I have felt, uh, sexually in my life yes. and in our, yes. in my marriage, I could go for another hour and just the stuff we've dealt with in our marriage as a direct uh -huh. result of how we were informed. 
And now we're realizing that it doesn't have to be that way. And there's so much freedom to not think that way. Right. Um, so kind of, yeah, distill that. I know again, I'm doing Riff a little I'm bit, doing the impossible thing and asking you to summarize <laughs> these chapters in like a minute, just to give people a, a yeah. taste. Well, maybe what I'll say is that, um, for many of us inside or outside of evangelical communities, there was a silence around sexuality and the yeah. silence communicates something, yeah. right? It's, um, there is, there's sins of commission and sins of omission, mm-hmm. right? There's the harmful messages that we learned about sexuality. It's bad. It's dangerous. Um, your body is bad. Pleasure is sinful. I mean, your body is an object to be used by somebody else, or your body is a, an object to conquer somebody else's body and to get mm. dominion. And it's your right. Like the, those are the commissions, but the omissions yep. are not being told about the goodness of their sexuality, not actually even having conversation about it, the silence that surrounds it, that comes with this kind of insidious shame that makes us feel like we're fumbling around and something, something's dirty or something's bad about being in our body and that it's dangerous that, as a result. So for many of us, the fact that it wasn't talked about spoke just as loud as the harmful things that we did here. Yeah. And again, it's really hard when we think about sexuality to separate it out from any of the other problematic systems that impact our bodies, like um, heterosexism and white supremacy and uh, what else, like other kinds of spiritual abuse that have us just think that disembodiment is good and bodies are bad and unruly and need to be controlled. I mean, patriarchy is written into all of these pieces. I think a really big thing that that I want to name with this chapter and for anyone who's listening right now is that many of us who grew up in contexts where stories around sexuality were dysfunctional, learned to believe that our sexuality was a thing that existed in the space between us and somebody else. And I want to bring kind of unhook those stories of sexuality and bring them back into our own body to say, your sexuality is yours. It belongs to you. It is about you. It is for you. Yes, you get to express and experience it with somebody else, but we're all sexual. Even in moments where we're not touching someone else, when we're not thinking about eroticism and that sexuality in its very essence is this kind of like activating life force that draws us into expression and fullness. It is also in desire. It is also in desire for things outside of erotic pleasure. It's also Mm. in um, our longing to be close to someone in a non kind of erotically charged way where when we feel the desire to lean in and say to somebody else, tell me more, I want to know you. There's a piece of sexuality in that. It's like this, this thing that's this fire that gets stoked that stoked that drives us towards fullness in every sense of the word. And so for us to be given this picture of sexuality that one, it, it, it belongs to somebody else, either a, a white man or a person in power or your heterosexual spouse or whatever, one, that's completely untrue. And two, I guess, I mean, there's some so much we could say just right. in, in and of itself with that, like sexuality belongs to somebody else. But but we've been told that sexuality is this particular thing. It is genital to genital contact in a you know two person relationship where there's climax and there's you know these the play it's, yeah. it's genital pleasure. Like it's so reductive that we yeah. miss the entire scope of how sexuality is infused into most things that we do. 
And I think that part of the control around sexuality and being it being reduced to these very binary restricted things is part of the mechanism of control of it. It's trying to create a box that it can fit in because it's actually quite potent and I would say quite spiritual and maybe even threatening, threatening in certain situations for people who've been um, in contact with its potential and power. Friends, you you've got to go if if <laughs> you're, you're you're just pl- you're just playing around. If you haven't paused this podcast mm. at this point and gone on to your local bookstore's website to get this book, um, mm. in the last chapter, which gives us these okay. actual like tangible practices yeah. uh, to help us live this embodied life, um, is worth the price of admission. Just that last chapter, but the mm. whole thing—it's just amazing. Thank you should have charged a thousand dollars for this book. <laughs> Um, because it's just, it's just incredible. Um, so uh, as we begin to wrap up here, because I want to be respectful of your time, you, you tweeted something earlier this month. We're in the month of April. If you're listening Mm -hmm. after the fact, and you tweeted something that obviously resonated with lots and (laughs) lots of people, you know, you know where I'm going right Right. now, because, because Uh I mean, it just, when I read it, I was like, Oh my God, like that's it. Mm -hmm. And, and I kind of want to know why at that moment you were, you know, tweeting that and thinking about it just to get a little bit, you know, more into your, your head and heart there. But you tweeted uh, this, you, you tweeted spiritual trauma is someone handing you an inner critic and telling you it's the voice of God. What was happening? Mm. Why did you share that? And what sort of as you've gotten right. feedback to the tune of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of comments and probably DMs and all the shares and all the likes and all that, like what's the feedback you've gotten so far yeah. from that? Because it's so fucking true. And it just, yeah. hit me. I mean, it was like bullseye, like, right. It just, it, it, that made sense for so much of yeah. my life. And it made me feel so free for where, how, where, and how I'm living now yeah. where that critic is gone. Yes. I mean, just gone. Like, mm. sure, every once in a while peeks in, but just doesn't show up anymore yeah. because I yeah. told that thing to get the hell away, right? Yeah. But yeah, talk about that tweet and the... Yeah. Well, what, I'm working on a project around spiritual trauma. So I'm just thinking about these things all the time. What is it? Where does it come from? How do we heal it? What are the mechanisms that live in us? And particularly, how do we confuse other people's really dysfunctional and abusive behavior with who and what God is and what is the imprint of that on us. And so I'm just thinking about it and I'm seeing it and I'm hearing patients talk about it and I'm going, oh, that's what's happening. Like someone, someone created the structure of a critic inside of you, but told you that it could be trusted and told you that it was God and got everything kind of all the wires got crossed inside about, yeah, how, how your moral compass and what you believe about yourself. And that, that wasn't because you did anything wrong. That's because somebody gave that to you and told you it was something other than what it is. Mm. So I'm just, that's kind of the, the mechanics of it. But I think the resonance with people is, is profound, like in it, it clarifying and simplifying the wounds that so many of us have been left with. And there's just like, it can go on and on and on. Like there's all sorts of things that I've been thinking about related to how we, we develop neurotic guilt and think it's, you know, our, it's the work of the spirit telling us that we're off base and we need to repent. And really what's actually going on is we've been trained to feel horrible 
about all sorts of things that are not actually bad and awful. And we think it's a sign of goodness that we're feeling awful and everything gets tangled up inside. So there are just like, I think what happens for people when they have been living in a system that is confusing and disorienting, but they feel like they're doing the right thing. And somehow they feel like um, if they adopt the beliefs of the community that they're in, that they'll things won't feel so chaotic inside, but the more they adopt those beliefs and values, the more it feels chaotic because it's taking us away from what's what we naturally know to be true. And then all of a sudden a piece of insight drops in and it kind of organizes things and it gives us a map and it goes, oh, oh, that's where I'm at on the map. And that's why I feel so lost. And actually I'm not lost anymore when I can put my finger on the map or like the, the dot on Google map appears, Google maps appears oh, I can find where I am now. It's not so confusing because there's the trauma, but then there's also the, the confusion around the trauma that comes with thinking that we were just doing the right thing and we were just doing everything we were told. And why do we feel so awful inside? And it, it just feels like an act of love as a person in a position of insight and power, as a psychologist, as someone who hears people say the same things to me all the time and think that they're the only one to kind of hand it back to our communities and go, hey, just a heads up, you're actually not the only one. And here's a way to make sense of that. It's a way, I think, I think of it as like a public service or public psychology in a way to go, here's a way to make sense of your trauma. You're actually not broken. It makes sense you feel that way. Wow. Wow. I'm so glad that we get to live in a time where maybe more than ever before, and I might be exaggerating that, but it seems like more than ever before, people are waking up to the truth of that, mm. that statement, that idea, and they're rejecting it Yeah, for hundreds right. and thousands of years. Spiritual leaders have used this voice of God, air quotes, to control people, mm -hmm. to hurt people. Mm -hmm. When in reality, God is love. Mm. That's who mm -hmm. God is. God is love and God puts that love in as many places as much as possible all the time. God is trying to, you know, heal and unify and help us and love us. And when, but we grew up, believing that that God also, if you fuck up, even like you're, God will hurt you. Mm -hmm. God will hurt you. Maybe God won't even let you into heaven, right? Like we just so much fear and so much, so much trauma that came from that. And I'm seeing so many people really, and again, you put it so well in, you know, in 12 words, uh, whatever it is, but so many people taking that truth and using that as a launching pad for getting healthy, for mm -hmm. recovering from that spiritual trauma that they have yeah. spent so many years enduring. Yeah. Um, so, right. so I can't wait for this, whatever project it is. I want to, <laughs> I want to, I want to read, I want to watch, I want to listen. I want to, uh, what, what, whatever it is. Last question before we go, you are always helping other people. It's your job. You're helping other people. How do you help yourself? How are you staying healthy? Are you, do you feel oh. like you're staying healthy? Let me count the ways. I sleep regularly. I eat cake often. I run, I pray, I meditate. I, I'm sewing because it brings me pleasure. I have deep, meaningful conversations with my partner and with my family and my friends. And I 
love to laugh. And I think probably just as important to all of those things is I love to go to therapy as a patient. I love, mm. I love to keep working on the places that feel painful and the reactions that I have that surprise me in the places that feel scary to go to alone. So I have a very rigorous and active self-care practice. I am extremely disciplined around loving myself and tuning, turning towards myself. And I know that I've worked hard for that, but it it is the thing that allows me to extend love into the world because I'm I'm working hard to cultivate it inside of myself for myself. It's very clear that you're doing that work. I didn't mm-hmm. expect any other answer. It's very clear because that's coming, it's it's coming through. You're not a you're not here giving an interview, answering questions, um, kind of, you know, just just reciting the all the academic uh, like bullshit that you've mm-hmm. like just memorized, right? Like that's not what's happening here. You have mm-hmm. it, it, it comes through that you actually believe this and that <laughs> and that as you help people you know, you're being helped as well. Mm, um, Hillary, Dr. Hillary McBride, you have helped me. Um, and I know that you at this point in the conversation for those listening have helped so many others as well. Mm. Um, friends, seriously, go get the book, follow Hillary on, uh, social media. Everything will be in the show notes. Um, so glad you could join me finally. I hope Thank maybe, you. Maybe, we did it. Maybe a couple of years from now we'll get to do it again because it'll take that long I to figure it. it out and you're so busy. But <laughs> thank you so much for being with us here today. My pleasure. I'm so grateful. Thank you for every question and reaction and all the space you created. It feels so good to be with you. Friends and damn givers, thank you for showing up and for spending some time with Hillary and me this week. To find links for everything mentioned in today's conversation and to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. Please share this podcast conversation with a friend. Please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And please, most of all, show up next week. We have many more incredible conversations coming your way. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the incredible team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out anytime for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.